Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Haley. And thank you for those that serve with him. And thank you, young men, for taking up the offering. I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning that you can open up or that you can turn on. Um, there's always Bibles in the back on that rack. If you ever come in and you don't have one, I would love for you to have something, God's Word, in front of you. This morning, if you would take it out and open it up to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Of course, you can always go in the front of your Bible, and there's a table of contents. If you're unfamiliar with where the book of Malachi is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And so if you go to the New Testament, which is that second division there in your Bible, then you just take a left. Go left from Matthew, and you'll end up in Malachi. And so Malachi is the last of what is considered to be the minor prophets there in your Old Testament. Four chapters um, written from Malachi under the inspiration of God, written to the people of Israel. But Malachi chapter 1 is where we're going to be at this morning. Then also, if you came in, then there were some bulletins at both doors, and I hope that you would have gotten one. On the back of that, there's some notes if you want to use those during our time together in the Word this morning. But we're going to start in Malachi chapter 1, um, and we're going to pick it up in a few moments there in verse 6. In Oklahoma City, there's a place that used to be called the Omniplex. Now it's called the Oklahoma Science Museum. They had to get all fancy, but inside of that space, there is a lot of different events or a lot of different exhibits, scientific exhibits. And as a child, we went there quite a bit. And one of the exhibits, and I don't know if it's still there or not, it may still be there, but one of the exhibits there in the Oklahoma Science Museum was a maze of mirrors. So you walk in through one door and all it is is mirrors, mirrors, mirrors. And so you try to navigate your way through the maze to come out on the other side. But it was kind of confusing because everywhere you looked, you saw copies of yourself in every single direction. And so there was a maze that came out. But one of the things that we loved to do is we would time ourselves and we would race, see who could go through the maze the fastest. But when you came out of the maze, there was a series of mirrors. And you've seen those mirrors before. You look into one mirror and you get taller. And you look into one mirror and you get shorter. And you look in one mirror and you get skinnier. In one mirror you get larger. <laughs> like you've been married for a little while. And so you've got these different mirrors. And these mirrors are specifically on purpose. They are distorted to make you look differently depending on which which mirror you're looking in. And so sometimes you would sit there and you would say, I wonder what I'd look like with a big old giant head, like Mr. Incredible. And sometimes you think, well, what would I look like in this mirror? And so you go, and there was a series of uh, five or six different mirrors, if you will, that always gave you a different reflection of who you were. You know, sometimes in our Christian life, or even sometimes just in our human life, we are tempted to gravitate to those people who see us or who reflect to us the things that we want to be seen as or reflected by. One of the dangers we have right now with social media and with the advent of so many different ways that you can get information and you can get news is that you can surround yourself, you can insulate yourself with people that think the way, same way that you think, that people that always affirm you and they never are honest with you or people that always say the things that you want to hear. And sometimes in our daily lives, it can be possible for us to act like those young people like myself looking into those mirrors saying, I don't want to pay attention to what that mirror says. I don't want to look at what that mirror says. I don't want to look at that mirror. I want to get over here because this is the mirror that makes me feel the best about myself. And we're in a day and age that people have become consumed with only getting the information and the feedback and the reflection they want. And they can sometimes miss what really is. 
It's tempting to do that in a church. It's tempting for us to come to the church and to look around at other churches and say, well, 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 we are better than them, and so we have it good. Or if you compare our numbers to other churches of like size and, and like demographics, then we're doing better or worse. And, and you see, even on the state level, the state Baptist people will put out numbers as far as giving, as far as attendance, as far as baptisms. And so it's tempting for you to sit back as a church and to say, well, we're doing better or worse than our peers. Or even our Christianity, sometimes we can look around and we can say, well, you know what? I have my faults and I have my failures, but I'm doing better than him. I'm doing better than her. And we start to gauge our faithfulness to God off the faithfulness of the people around us. We are looking at the wrong reflections. When you come to the prophet Malachi, he is writing, it says there in chapter one in verse one, he is the one writing, it's an oracle, it says there, an oracle of the word to the Lord, or of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So Malachi is the speaker, he is the one doing the writing, but God is the one doing the speaking through the pen of Malachi. He is the source of the information. And as Malachi comes, he's writing to these people, what he's going to tell them is, is it doesn't matter what you think you're doing, it doesn't matter what your peers say you're doing, it doesn't matter what the culture says you are doing, it doesn't matter what society says you're doing. It doesn't matter what everybody around you thinks about you. This is what God sees in you. And I think in a day and age, we get so consumed with the opinions of man and the popularity of people, and we get so caught up in pleasing the wrong personalities. But maybe we just need to ask, what does God see in us? Not what you see in me, what does God see in me? Am I here to please you? Am I here to please God? And we can get caught up in this life and in this rat race of life, trying to please, trying to serve, and looking to the wrong things to get an understanding of where we are. So Malachi opens up, and this whole book, this whole prophet of Malachi is there to the nation of Israel, and it's all geared towards saying this is what God sees, and this is what God, this morning we're going to look at some challenges that God brings to the people, but he's going to say, hey, this is what God sees, this is what God thinks, and you might want to consider where you're at based upon God's opinion, not based upon your opinion or man's opinion. And I think it's a timely letter for us this morning because too often we can get caught up with counting noses or comparing ourselves to the people around us and we forget that we are not living for the audience of one another. We are living for the audience of God. And one day when we breathe our last breath and we are standing in judgment, we're not going to stand in judgment on social media. We're not going to stand in judgment in our employer. We're not going to stand in judgment of our friends. We're going to stand in judgment before God. And the only opinion that matters in that moment is what God thinks about us. So this morning, I want you and I to see together here in the first chapter of Malachi, just some challenges that God brings. Now, I don't want to be all critical and I don't want to be all negative and I, and I, and I don't want to present it as, oh, we're just terrible people. But let's consider some challenges that God brings to the nation of Israel so he's directing this at his chosen people, the nation of Israel, but I think that there are some application that we can ask ourselves. Would this be something that God would say to me? So in verse two down through verse five, it's a little bit crazy if you, if you take time to read it, but what really Malachi is doing is he's reminding the people of Israel that God loves them and God chose them. If you think about your Jewish lineage, you had Abram, or now was Abraham. He was the father of the entire nation of Israel. He had one son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And through that lineage, God chose 
Jacob to be that lineage and to be that heir. So in verse two through five, he just explains, Malachi's reminding them that God chose you. Now that brings in the whole story of election, whole story of predestination. And you wanna know where I stand? I stand that God has chosen us. God loves us and God has chosen us. You may say, well, Spence, where do you stand on predestination or election of some of those things? I'm gonna tell you there's a lot of room for us to have different opinions, but the reality is, is that I did not choose in my dead state to save myself. God chose me and God loves me. So just as Malachi is reminding them that God has chosen them and that God loves them so this isn't some angry, disgruntled person out there trying to criticize them or trying to break them down, Malachi reminds them this is the God that created them. This is the God that loves them. This is the God that chose them. And this is the God that is doing everything to redeem them. So churches, we come to these next few verses, verse 16 down through verse 14. Let us not hear it as somebody that is always telling us what we're doing wrong, but let us hear it from a God that loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And a God that is so loving that is going to say, this is when you're right and this is when you're wrong. There's some things in parenthood that you say to your children, not because it's popular, not because they like it, but because you love them. In the same way, God is going to do the same thing here. Now, through the pen, through the voice of Malachi, God is going to bring, I put there, you can break it up in different ways, but just three different challenges. And the first one starts in verse 6. So if you're there in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, listen to what the word of God says. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. The first challenge that God brings through the mouth of Malachi to the people has to do with their approach. Has to do with their approach. It was how they were coming to God. Now, all through this letter, you're going to see Malachi, and he is going to write, and he's going to say, God says this, you say this, you say this, God says this, and this back and forth. So you got to keep up through the text and what is going on. And so Malachi comes in and says, God is wanting to know What's going on? God is wanting to know why you are coming to him like this. And in fact, he says there in verse six, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? God is asking the nation of Israel, when you come to me and when you come to the things that are holy of God, where's the honor and where's the fear? Now, what do we call honor? Well, honor is the recognition of a position. That is what it means to give honor. It's that you recognize the position. Now he, so he says, if I am your heavenly father, if I am your creator God, then I have a position. It doesn't mean if you think I've earned it or you think I've merited it. It's the fact that I am in a position. It is, therefore, a place of honor. Right now, we are really struggling as a nation because we have forgotten that in many ways, especially when it comes to the office of the president. There have been numerous presidents in my lifetime that I have disagreed with, but we can still honor the office. And yet we are living in a day and age that we are not teaching our young people how to honor the office that is set before us. And we see this trickle down because now you stop honoring administration in your school systems. You stop honoring administration in your municipalities. You stop honoring the position because you think, well, I don't like the person. The person is not the same as the position. And God is saying here, you may not like me, you may not feel good about me, I may not be doing the things that you want me to do, but because I am God, I have a position above you, and that is worthy of honor. He says, your approach, you don't honor me. 
You're not coming to me recognizing my position. You think I'm your homeboy. You think I'm the man upstairs. You think that I'm going to be somebody sitting in a bar that you're going to have a beer with. You think that I am somebody that you can take flippantly. You think that I'm somebody that you can come in a trite way. You forget my position. But not just that. God also reminds them, where is my fear? Fear is understanding of And God is looking at them and is saying, when you come to me, where is your honor and where is your fear? Do you come to me with an understanding, a recognition of my position and an understanding of my power? How is it that you come to God? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes we take for granted what we get to do before God. Prayer is a last resort. God's word is only if I have time. When I come into the congregation of a people assembled and I sing worship songs to God and I sit around with God's people to study God's word and to apply God's word to our lives, I can take it flippantly and I can come with the wrong attitude. I can come with the wrong heart. I can come with arrogance. I can come with rebellion. I can come with all kinds of malice in my heart and in my life, and I can come with the wrong approach. And God comes right here in verse six, and he makes it very clear to these people of Israel. He says, you know what? When I look at how you're coming to me, your approach is all wrong. You do not honor me as God, and you do not fear me as God. During the week, I deal a lot with electricity. One of the strange things about electricity is electricity doesn't talk. You're Ronald and you're a plumber and you have a leaking pipe someplace, you're gonna know because it's wet. You're gonna know because you've got a mess. You're gonna know because you've got a problem. You've got a bare wire or a short someplace. Most of the time, there is no alarm system. There is no, you're getting too close, you need to watch out. There is not any kind of recognition until, boom, it's too late. And whether you're dealing with single phase or three phase or 120 or 480 or 7200 or 14,400 volts, it all has a certain amount of danger. And if you are the person that comes in contact with something that you shouldn't come in contact with, it doesn't take very long for you to have a fear for electricity. The next thing you know, you say, I'm not touching that. Let's call an electrician. Or somebody says, you know, that looks kind of sketchy. I don't think I'm going to mess with that. And so you, out of a fear, sometimes it's out of ignorance, but most of the time it's out of fear. You got bit, you got hurt, something affected you, and you don't want to mess with anymore. But you have a fear because you understand the potential, you understand the power that lies within the electricity. And yet how many times do we walk in fearful of God? Why should I be fearful of God? God loves me. Yes, and God is holy, and God is righteous. And there have been people throughout Scripture that came in, and they profaned the name of God, and they took God for granted, and they blasphemed the holiness of God. And what did God do? That's it. And yet you and I come in so many times in the church, and we take God for granted. So he asked him, he asked him about their approach. And he said, no, let's consider your approach. This is what I see when you come to me. This is your approach. One of the things in our house, whenever the boys get up and they come in in the mornings, I will say good morning to the boys. Good morning, son. And whether they like it or not, they're expected to say good morning. 
They're expecting to say good morning back. And you may say, well, why? Because it's early in the morning and they need to have the discipline of still being polite, still being courteous. Somebody speaks to you, you speak back to them. And one of the things is they have been growing up. They come in there and they've got their, they're, they're already cranky because they just woke up and they got this brand and they come in and they're coming all the wrong way. And I just look at them and say, go get back in bed. Get rid of that crankiness and then come back in when you have a better attitude because they're coming in and they're approaching the day all wrong. How many times, adults, do we get up and we approach the day all wrong? And then we come to church and we approach the church all wrong. But much more dangerous than that is we come to God and we approach God so right there in verse six, God is coming. He's speaking through Malachi to the people and he says, <laughs> you, you, you don't honor me, you don't fear me, but then it gets worse. Then it gets worse there in verse six. <clears throat> so the people look back and say, but you say, how have we despised your name? And so the people are looking back at God and say, well, God, how is it that we haven't approached you? How is it that we haven't honored you? How is it that we haven't feared you? But you say, how have we despised your name? And then God responds by offering polluted Food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is not that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is not that evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among, there are one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. You say, Spence, what is he saying there? He is addressing their giving. He is addressing the way that they come and the way they give back to God. So he's, he's, he's bringing, bringing up this subject in what they're giving back to God. And you may say, well, isn't all giving the same? No, giving is not all the same. Not all giving is where it should be. And so God is wanting to address not only their lack of approach, but also their giving back to him. Now, where do they get this from? Well, if you were to go back in your Bible, you may just write this down in your margin. You're to go back into Leviticus chapter one, and God gives them instructions about the burnt offerings. You go to Leviticus chapter 2, and God gives them instructions about the grain offerings. Leviticus chapter 3, he gives them instructions regarding the peace offerings. Leviticus chapter 4, he gives them instructions regarding the sin offerings. Leviticus chapter 5, he gives them instructions regarding the guilt offerings. Then you think about Exodus chapter 12, and right before they were brought out of Egypt, and they were bringing that great, that, that great redemption that God brought through the Exodus, in Exodus 12, when they were to repair the Passover lamb and they were to do the blood and all that thing for the, for the angel, the death angel, to pass them by, there were very clear instructions about what kind of animal, the condition of the animal, the state of the animal they were to take. And God was very specific about how their offerings were to be prepared. So what God is doing is God is coming back to the people and saying, instead of you following my word and instead of you following my principles and instead of you following the conditions and the observations that I gave you, you have taken this for granted. In other words, they were giving trash instead of treasure. They were coming to God and they were saying, ha, this is the coal. To use some terminology today, you have a certain amount of animals. Uh, Jimmy was talking about a, a bovine terminology this morning at Sunday school, but you, but you have animals and whether it's cattle or sheep or horses or whatever, and you always have the ones that are fit for reproduction, the ones that are fit for husbandry, and then you have the ones of the coals. The ones you're going to sift. 
the ones that aren't any good, the ones that you're going to get rid of. So God is saying through Malachi to the people, instead of bringing me the best, and instead of bringing me the ones that I prescribed, and instead of bringing me the ones that I am worthy of, you're bringing me the trash. You're bringing me the lame. You're bringing me the sick. You're bringing me the polluted. You are coming to my table and bringing me what you have left over. In other words, what they were doing is they were giving to perform instead of giving to worship. So they're coming to God and they're saying, okay, so we have to provide these offerings. We've got to do these sacrifices. So here we come, but we're going to get the cheapest thing, the runtiest thing, the littlest thing, the most, uh, the least important thing. We're going to bring these things to God. And God says, when it comes to me, you think about all the things that I've given you, AKA everything that you have. And then I've given you my word to tell you how it is that you are to come back and approach me. And yet when it comes to me, you come in and give me your leftovers. You give me what you have to spare. You give me the second best. Think of it sometimes. In our day to day, we can get so tired from our activities on Saturday. We have no energy for God on Sunday. And then we show up dragging, tired, fatigued, and weary. Here I am, God. Be blessed. Because we spent so much of our energy and so much of our time and so much of our effort on Monday through Saturday. And then when it comes to Sunday, we don't have anything left to give to God. We show up here on a Sunday morning, you're like, oh my gracious, 10.45, it's so early. Oh. I'm so tired because you didn't prepare Saturday to come and worship on Sunday. You didn't make ready your worship before God. And whether you come in and whether it's monetary or whether it's with your time or whether it's with your priority or whether it's with your lordship of him over your life, when you come and you present yourself to God and that's what we do when we come together here, we are coming and we're presenting ourselves to God and to worship God and we come in this place, we are giving God. We are giving God our time. We're giving God our attention. We might be giving God some of our monetary resources. We're giving God our service. We are giving back to God when we come in here and yet so often we come in here, we're bringing in lame, sick, three-eyed, four-legged, two-headed stuff and saying, God, why aren't you happy? And so God comes in through the mouth of Malachi and he says, these things that you're bringing me, you wonder why I won't accept them. And then he gets down there, verse, verse, verse eight, Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? He says, you know what? You kind of get upset saying, God, won't you take that? Why don't you go take that to the people you're living with? Why don't you go take that to the people that you're under their authority of? Why don't you go take that to the people that you serve? Will they accept that? Can you just imagine you going to the coach? Saying, coach, I want to play on your team. Coach says, great. And you say, but there's a problem. I'm only going to make 50% of the games. Okay, what about the practices? Well, you know, I'm kind of hit or miss on the practices. Yeah, it's going to kind of be a morning of decision whether I come to the practices or not. And you know the equipment, the equipment, well, I just don't think I can afford it, so I'm just going to get an app on my phone, and I'm just going to look at it through there. And you know, I really want to play on your team. It's just I'm not willing to put out the effort to be part of the team. And you know, how many times do we come to God we say, God, I'm so grateful that you saved me, but here's the leftovers of my life. Here's 
the last five minutes that I hurriedly put together. We give to perform, not to worship, and the people here in this day, in fact, Malachi says it through the, verse, the, through the voice of God there in verse 10. He says, Oh, that were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle, file on my, kindle a fire on my altar in vain. God is saying, I would rather, if you're going to try to give me this, I would rather you not give me anything than to give me this second-rate stuff. But the problem that they were facing in that time is that there were people that were giving not to be accepted but to be seen. They wanted to come and say, look, I'm doing the sacrifices. Look, I'm doing the offering. Look, I'm going through the motions. Look, I'm marking off the boxes. And they were doing it to be, they were not doing it to be accepted by God. They were doing it to be seen by man. And sometimes in our Christian walk, we can get so consumed with people seeing me serving God that I don't ever ask the question, am I really serving God? Am I really being faithful to God? Mark chapter 12 gives us a very clear picture. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 41, God is sitting, or Jesus is sitting there and he's watching the treasury and he's watching the people come by and they're giving money into the treasury. And you know the story, the widow woman comes by and she drops in two copper coins. It was a very insignificant amount of money, a very minimal amount of money, minuscule if, if you can even count it an offering. But Jesus is watching and Jesus knows her heart. Jesus knows her condition. Jesus pulls the other disciples aside and said, you see what she did? She didn't give a big offering to be seen. She didn't get a big offering for recognition for people around her. Yet she gave sacrificially what God had given to her. I don't think there's been a single Sunday since I've been here serving you that I have spent an entire Sunday talking about money. Because the reality is, to me, the issue is not money. The issue is God. Do you love God enough to be faithful to God? And you know, you don't need me berating you and you don't need me nagging you about money, 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 money. I want you to be faithful to God. And when you're faithful to God, then you'll be faithful in your giving to God. And when you're faithful in your giving to God, then God will get what he has given, what he has given you and then put on your heart for you to give back to him. But brothers and sisters, let's not get this mistaken that we think that we're going to come in and we're going to give. We're going to give over time to be seen. We're going to give of our efforts to be heard. We're going to give when people are watching so that we're accepted by men and instead accepted by God. So God comes into these people and says, not only do I have concerns with the way you're approaching me, but I have concerns with what you're giving me. And then he goes on in verse 11. He says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made a male in his flock, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So not only God comes in and looks down upon the people and has questions about their approach, 
He has questions about their giving, but then also, this last one you'll see there in the notes, he has questions about their glory. He has questions about their glory. Now, you may say, well, Spence, where are you getting that from? Well, if you look there in verse 11, there's there's a repetition of words. If you look there in verse 11, he says, my name will be great among the nations. And then you skip down there in verse 11, and get, again, he says, will be offered to my name. And then again, for my name will be great. And then if you look at the last phrase there in verse 14, he says, my name will be feared among the nations. The whole focus of God right here in this little passage is the name of God. And it's God's name. It is God's renown. And it is the way that God is seen, the way that God is known, how how people come to God, that is what is on display here as God is speaking to them. Now, glory, glory, if you just look up a simple definition, glory is something that is a source of honor, fame, or admiration. That's what it means to give glory to something. That is something that is something that it means to offer up glory to something, something that you give honor, fame, or admiration. And so that's what God is saying here in this passage. God is saying, listen, When it comes to me and it comes to my place in your life, this life isn't about your glory. This life is about my glory. And I shouldn't say me isn't me, me, me. I'm talking about God. God is saying, hey, this is about my glory and not about our glory. And yet in this world, we get so twisted to start thinking that this life is about our glory and we forget God's glory. What do you mean, Spence? Well, we start Acquiring possessions, because possessions equal prestige. So these young men grow up, and they start thinking that they got to have this certain type of pickup. Oh, they got to have this certain type of vehicle, and this vehicle is a statement about who they are. You know what? It doesn't matter how nice of a truck you have. Your character can still be faulty. Your attitude can still be faulty, and you can still be lost as a duck in thunder headed for hell, and it doesn't matter how nice of a truck you have. You can still be not where God wants you to be. But we start to look at these as being a, a status, if you will. That what kind of a vehicle do you have? And then as we get older, we just change the terminology. And then it becomes a house. Then it becomes your possessions. Then it becomes your academics. And then it becomes your profession. And then it becomes your accolades. And then it becomes your accomplishments. And then, and then it becomes your reputation. And then it becomes your legacy. And all these things that we are living for, thinking we are living for the glory of ourselves. And God is saying, no, it's not about your glory. It's about my glory. That's why God says over and over, my name will be great. He's looking at the people and he's saying, you are so caught up in living for your glory and not living for my glory. Well, how do we get there? Well, the quick answer, the simple answer is sin. Sin is denying God's glory for our glory. Where do I get that from? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter three and they're sitting in the garden and the snake comes to Eve and says, hey, did God really say? What he's saying is God gave you this instruction. God will receive glory when you are faithful and obedient to him. And as soon as you turn from God's direction and you go your direction, you are now taking glory away from God in the terms of obedience, taking away glory from God in the terms of faithfulness. And now you are doing what you wanna do because you think that you're more important than God's word. So we are now positioning ourselves, setting ourselves up, where now our glory is more important than God's glory, and the Bible defines that as sin. So what is taking place here in this passage? Malachi chapter one, God is coming to them and saying, listen, this giving, these sacrifices, these offerings that you're doing, the greater problem is, is not the fact that it's lame, not the fact that it's sick, not the fact that it's deformed, not the fact that it is a a, disobedience to my word, the greater thing is, is that by doing that, you're profaning the name of God. 
People are looking around saying, why should I be a Christian? I live a more moral life than they do, and they go to church. Why should I give up my Sundays and go to church? That person talks worse than I do. What does it matter about my obedience to God? We watch the same things. We listen to the same things. We enjoy the same things. We tell the same jokes. We've had the same priorities. What does it matter? And God is looking to his people and is saying, no, 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 we, we, we got an issue. We got an issue when the church is living for their glory instead of God's glory. And you may not see it, but unfortunately, I, looking around churches and keeping track of kind of, uh, kind of being informed and being aware of what is going on in the world of churches today, we have so many people that are putting themselves up looking for fame and fortune for themselves. And you spend very much time around other churches and around other ministries and you start to realize that there are some people that are the, the genuine article. There are some people that it is all about God's glory and then there are some people that are all about their glory. And brothers and sisters, we must be careful even when people come in these world, even in this room and even in these side world, do they see God getting glory or do they see us looking for the glory? So right here in this passage, God is looking through Malachi and is saying, listen, Malachi, tell them. <clears throat> tell them that it's my glory that is at stake. But look at verse 13. He says, but you say, so he's talking about the people. How do the people respond back to God? But the people say, what a weariness is this. Now, if you look that word up in the original language, what it just simply translates to is a hardship. It's so the people of God are looking back in God and saying, God, we realize what you want from us. We realize your standards for our lives. We realize your expectations for our lives. But you know what? It's just too great of a hardship. It's just too much weariness. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the trouble. And then he goes on. He says, not only do they say it's too much of a weariness, and you snort at it. Now, I tried to think of a way to explain this imagery of a, a snort. The snort is just simply a, or a, or a gasp. Best way can I can think of it in my head is just recently, the last years, when we, President Trump was leading the country and you would watch him in some type of a media deal and somebody would say something that he just completely disagreed with and he had this look, kind of like a, you know, he had this scoff. He had this little bit of a condescending look upon his head like, ah, <laughs> and he had, and he, and it, it got made memes out of, there was some even apps, I mean, and there was all these things, satire that was bringing up to him because of his look. Well, that's, the, that's the, the communication that is there in verse 13 is that God is saying, you people, I give you my instruction, I give you my word, I give you my commandments, and one, of you, uh, one side of you says, well, that's too much of a hardship, he can't ask that much from us, and the other side of you just simply go, we're not doing that. And he said, and what's at stake is my name. So he says there in verse 13, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick, and this you bring as an offering. So I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. He's saying, really? You bring this in and you think I'm expected to take it? But then even more, even more concerning is verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. What he's getting down to is he is saying that when we start taking God's glory or we start stealing God's glory or we start reappropriating God's glory, when we don't give 
the way that God leads us to give, we are cheating God, and then cheating leads to stealing, and stealing, stealing leads to taking God's glory. And he says, who, what, what is the condition of the person that is taking God's glory for themselves? Verse 14, they are cursed. Brothers and sisters, the reminder is that sin, see this in your notes, sin leads us to living for the wrong name. And that's the danger when you and I get so caught up with pursuing our own desires and our own wants, we, we, we start to let this sin take us and the next thing you know, we're living for the wrong name. We're not living for the name of God, we're living for the name of popularity. We're living, we're, we're living for the name of acceptance. We're living for the name of ourselves and we're not living for God. And so here in this passage, God reminds them, my name will be feared. My name will be known. My name will be glorified. I wonder when he looks down upon our lives or looks down upon the life of this church, what does God see in us? What does he see in terms of our approach? What does he see in terms of our giving? What does he see in terms of our glory to him? So if you look down through the page there in the back of that bulletin, you're just going to see kind of a means of application, but it just says, what are we doing? It's just a way of just reflection, just asking yourselves, just a little bit of uh, time introspectively to think, okay, so what am I doing? I don't want to accuse you and say, oh, your approach is all wrong. I don't want to accuse you and say you're not giving to God the way you should. I don't want to accuse you and say that you're living for your own glory instead of God's glory. But at the same time, there is some application that we can take from this passage to ask ourselves, so what are we doing? God looks down upon us and God says, here is my observation of you. We get in a mirror, not a mirror that the world reflects, not a mirror that you reflect, not a mirror that your peers reflect, but we get in a mirror and we see what God sees. We see the reflection that God sees in our lives. What does God see? Just three things that I want you to consider, then we'll be due, then we'll be through. First one is this, our approach reveals our attitude. <clears throat> our approach reveals our attitude. It's how you walk into the room. It's how you sit down. It's the posture of your heart. It's the posture of your mind. It's the posture of your ears. It's the posture of your attitude. Our approach reveals our attitude. Sometimes, sometimes we come to God with a certain amount of demands. We come to God with a certain amount of expectations. We come to God with a certain amount of a list saying, God, I have done this, so now you have to do that. God, I have been faithful this week, so now you are required to do this for me. God, I have gone to church, so now I am demanding a blessing. We come to God and saying, God, here I am, so now I am going to tell you this is what you have to do for me. We come to God with an attitude. And then we wonder why we haven't gotten from God what we came to God to get. Because we didn't come to God to get God. We came to God to get satisfaction. And that's a temptation that I think that we all face. Do we come to God to get God? Or do we come to God to get more of this world? And our approach reveals our attitude. Several years ago, probably a decade or more ago, there was this whole seeker-friendly movement and the whole idea came down to that we want to pack the pews, we want to pack the chairs. And so all these ideas on how to leverage the environment, how to leverage the presentation, how to leverage the 
some churches still call it, how to leverage the experience so that when people come to church, not only that they feel encouraged, they feel put together, they, they, they feel motivated, and so they came and they can go back and say, man, that was a great experience. Man, that was a great service. Man, that was so awesome. But are they coming for the experience or are they coming for God? That's the question. That's the temptation. So not, first one is our approach reveals our attitude. Secondly, giving is a heart condition. And I mentioned this earlier, but giving is a heart condition. And I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about your resources, your time, your priorities, your submission to God. All of this is involved with giving. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 16, verses 6 through 15 is a great passage. You can go back and look at because in verse 7, it reminds us God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not you and I coming in begrudgingly saying, Ugh, it's like we're paying property taxes or we're having to pay taxes on excise or something like that. We're coming in saying, ha I get to give to God. Hallelujah, I get to give back what God has given to me. Hallelujah, I get to come in and serve. Hallelujah, I get to come in and serve other people. Hallelujah, I get to come in and be a part of the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. you help in the nursery? Did you go to kids camp with us? Would you serve in this capacity? You don't want to say no, so you'll say, I pray about it. Yeah, I know. I know. You think you're being slick. <laughs> nope. But you come in. But you come in with this grudging, saying, I'm willing to come and show up, just don't ask me to give. Giving is a heart condition. And so many times our hearts get cold because our priority is in the wrong spot. And this last one. Not only our approach reveals our attitude, giving is a heart condition. And this last one. Glory is eternal. Malachi chapter 1. God's coming and he's speaking to Malachi and he's saying, Malachi, do these people not know who they are? Do these people not know that they are my chosen people? I have redeemed them. I have saved their carcass at every turn when the world wanted to destroy them. I am always in their corner making a way so that they might come to me. Malachi, do they not understand there is not a valley too deep that I can't come? There is not a night so dark that I can't brighten? Do they not understand my sovereignty? Do they not understand my power? Do they not understand my holiness? And why in the world, when they know all these things about me, why? Why do they not give me glory? Because, church, glory is eternal. You may say, Spence, what do you mean glory is eternal? <clears throat> well, let me read you out of Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 22, the Bible says this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book 
of life. What he's describing there is that new heaven. And he is saying, when you get into that new heaven, what is gonna be there? You're not gonna need to have this artificial light because you're gonna have the light from the glory of God. And so glory is eternal. Either we will be giving glory to God for an eternity in heaven and living with him, or we're gonna be in hell because we refuse to give glory to God on this earth. So now we spend the rest of eternity in hell giving glory to other things that are not God. Your glory is eternal. Either you are going to live in heaven for an eternity, giving glory to God, or you're going to live in hell for an eternity, giving glory to Satan and to the things of this world. Your glory is eternal. God sees our glory. God is worthy of our glory. God says, there is nothing else more worthy of our glory. And brothers and sisters, I wonder how many times you and I come to the things of God and we come to the place of God and we come to the throne of God. And we've given glory to sports. We've given glory to possessions. We've given glory to money. We've given glory to people. We've given glory to accomplishments. We've given glory to reputations. We've given glory to our hobbies, we've given glory to a lot of other things, but we haven't given glory to God. Do we not understand that the only thing that will last for an eternity in heaven is not the light bulbs, it's not your possessions, not your accomplishments, not your good intentions. It's the glory of God. So what does God see in our lives this morning? Would you bow your heads with me?